Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, The Exorcist gets a letter delivered by the postman. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other one two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I am here, uh, you know, Adam is still on his sabbatical as of yet, um, so I'm just uh, standing here all alone in the middle of this dark Georgetown house waiting for the devil to possess me, but who could save me? Oh, wait, it's the Pony Express himself coming back to the show. One of our favorite guests returning for the first time in far too long is Mr. Casey Gerard. Casey, welcome, and you have a package for me? I do! Oh, oh, oh dear, oh, it's the wrong kind of package. Oh, I thought I thought, I thought this was when I was, like, delivering a pizza. Oh, no. <laughs> I've fallen on hard times since last I was here. <laughs> You know, you're getting on those triple X, it's not a porn parody, or whatever. (laughs) Uh, But welcome back, Casey, to the show, um, in which uh, this week, uh, you know, we're releasing an episode right before the Oscars, and we like doing some kind of thing tied to the Oscars and stuff like that for our show, where we cover our good and our bad pick. And uh, the topic we came up with uh, was Best Picture Follow-Ups, which I'll fully admit, I... uh, kind of stole this from uh, one of my favorite shows, Screen Drafts, did uh, an episode recently about the Best Picture follow-ups of sorts, and I thought it was just an interesting topic, because basically, with Best Picture follow-ups, it'll be uh, the directors who directed a Best Picture winning film, the movie that they would follow that up with, uh, with sort of like the carte blanche of having won an Academy Award. So, like, for example, you have, uh, like, Guillermo del Toro, one for The Shape of Water, so he follows it up with A Night of Nightmare Alley, a movie that I don't think would have ever been made <laughs> unless he had the cachet of the Best Picture winning Shape of Water, which is also funny given uh, that movie was also just very much dumped to, like, uh, hey, let's release you right alongside Spider-Man, where no one can see you. <laughs> Honestly, I'd, and maybe you and I are going to differ on this, but I just, when you said that, I just thought to myself, imagine spending your Best Picture clout on Nightmare Alley. I am also not a fan of Nightmare Alley. That's not okay. one of my faves. I especially I prefer the the '40s black and white movie, which I'm sure is something you might agree with. Shockingly, Casey, do you like old black and white movies? I do like old black and white movies, but I've actually never seen Nightmare Alley. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, that one's pretty good. But anyway, anyway, anyway. So you decided <laughs> to come on for Best Picture follow-ups. Uh, did that fascinate you as a topic, Casey? What interested you in doing Best Picture follow-ups as a topic? Two things. One. I thought I would talk about the conversation, and I was excited for that, forgetting you guys did an episode on it. Right. Two, like you, I also have been Screen Drafts pilled, and I really liked that episode. Yeah. Uh, screen Drafts, it's great if you have five hours to kill. That's true. Yeah, we were only like an hour and a half, so stick with us. Um. Yeah. Yeah, that's like, <laughs> that's your commute in a day compared to your commute for several weeks. Right. Yes. But, and I sat through that entire Spielberg draft. Oh, yeah, all three parts of that Spielberg draft? Yeah, for sure. All three parts? I still have not cracked open that producer's uh, draft, because, like, okay, 
I need a break. I'll come back to this in July. <laughs> but yeah, I've also been interested in that. It's similar to another podcast you and I are both fans of, uh, Blank Check. Uh, I really like the when you are on the top of the world, what do you do with that clout? And it's a very fascinating list of movies. Movies that are either, okay, this is a slam dunk. Some of these are also best picture winners. Some of these are magnum opuses. Some of these are weird ass passion projects you would not imagine anyone making. But this is like, okay, this is the thing that inspired me. I'm going to go with this at this moment because I'll never get this opportunity again. That's true, yeah, because sometimes you get like the underrated gems, like say Widows, which we've covered on the show as an example of that. Um, mm-hmm. And then other times you get something like, I, I found out that um, Tom McCarthy's follow-up to Spotlight was a Disney Plus movie called Timmy Failure. I was not aware of at all. <laughs> 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 That's a movie, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> And especially, like, my favorites are the ones where, like, the Best Picture follow-up is a movie that's easily, like, way better than the one that actually won Best Picture. Like, I would say that's the case for, say, uh, Sam Mendes with uh, following up American Beauty to Road to Perdition. Way better follow-up, mm-hmm. I would argue. Or just, like, the weird ones where it's, like, you know, one of the alternate picks was uh, Burn After Reading, which, after No Country, like, that feels like almost the, the Coen brothers going back to a very old style of their comedies, which I was sh- not shocked at all by, like, everyone being like, why would you follow up No Country with this? It's like, only the Coen brothers would do that. Of course they would. And I would argue that has aged. I wouldn't say aged very well because it implies that it was, like, there was something wrong with it at first, and there was not. People just came around on it in a way that they were not ready for it back then, in a weird way. Right, I would agree with that. But then there's also, like, the big disasters. Like, one of the ones we've covered is uh, Live by Night, which is kind of, like, infamous in terms of, like, following up Argo... Ben Affleck with, like, that, right in the middle of all the Batman v Superman stuff and Justice League, and it was just, like, he looks so sad in that fucking movie. <laughs> and I have, uh, I have no memory of that movie existing. Most people don't. Was it, did it just come out at the time when we were all just still thinking about the election and we just did not have the bandwidth for it? The effects of BVS didn't help with that. Because uh, <laughs> we're coming off not too long after that. Ben Affleck looks like the meme, the Hello Darkness, my old friend meme throughout that entire movie. Another weird one is something like Nomadland immediately being followed up with Eternals. Which, say what you will about Eternals, that is a fascinating, especially like a Marvel movie. I believe you also at least kind of dig that movie the way I do. Would you say it's the best of the post-Endgame movies? Um... I mean, it's either that for me or Wakanda Forever, and even then, both are very messy movies. I think yeah, both are very messy. messy movies. Yeah, and I, I also really like Wakanda Forever. That okay, this is kind of a kitchen sink. Well, that's very interesting. Yes, that we're, we're both on the same page for this. But let's see if we're going to be on the same page for the movies that were picked at the end of our previous episode, where uh, if you're new, every week uh, we have you know two good picks, two bad picks, assign numbers between one and ten for them, and uh, we have. You know, the uh, good pick is chosen at random and the bad pick is chosen as well. And so our uh, good pick, uh, that was uh, one of Adam's choices he submitted to me despite his sabbatical, which was The Exorcist. And then uh, the bad pick, which was my choice, and I'll just say sorry now before we do end up discussing it in a bit, uh, with uh, The Postman. I don't uh, forgive you. I don't blame you. Um, I don't forgive myself for a lot of things, especially that. Um, but let's go ahead and start off with uh, the good one, The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition, 
there is another world. The world of darkness. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. The one hope. The only hope. The Exorcist. So uh, The Exorcist came out December 26, 1973. You know, just in time post-Christmas, everyone can go to the theater and see the spooky horror movie uh, from director William Friedkin, and of course written by William Peter Blatty based on his novel. And this was uh, Friedkin's follow-up to The French Connection, which had won Best Picture along with, like, Best Director and Actor, Screenplay and Editing. It was a very popular movie at the Oscars that year. And uh, The Exorcist ended up being nominated for several awards, including, like, Best Picture and... Uh, best Actress, Supporting Actress, a bunch of things. One ended up winning for Best Adapted Screenplay for Blatty, amongst other things. You know, you were on our um, Kid Horror episode ages ago. That was, I believe, the first episode you were on for us. But uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about, like, classic horror in this realm before in our friendship, Casey. So I'm curious, what is your history with The Exorcist? So my history with The Exorcist is, like many people are getting into old movies, uh, I watched it probably on AMC uh, when I was 12 years old with some of the cuss words and gory bits cut out, even though there's not that many gory bits, there probably was something cuts. And I didn't quite get it, but then I've like watched it since several times. I have a blue, I then finally fought, got on Blu-ray. I got the steel book of it. And this is actually super fun. Uh, my steel book, uh, it's the director's cut, but they sent it with a, one of the sleeves for the digital copy. And the digital copy they gave me was they messed up and sent me the theatrical cut. So they accidentally gave me both versions of the movie. Right, because you're referring to there's the version you've never seen that came out in oh, 2000. Where they correct, inserted, the like, version you've never stuff. seen. Right, yes. Yeah. Which I remember that's around the time I at least heard of The Exorcist for the first time. I mean, I had seen – this was definitely a great example of a movie where I saw hundreds of parodies long before I saw this movie. Like, I – I'm very sure I saw the Leslie Nielsen, Linda Blair uh, starring uh, parody Repossessed long before I ever saw The Exorcist. Um, and yeah, so it was a movie that I remember when I first saw it. This is a problem I think I have with like a lot of sort of like horror, you know, sort of build up like that sort of um, immediately giving the movie the title of like, oh, it's the scariest movie ever made or it's one of the scariest things that's come out in years. I think that immediately puts a weird chip on horror movie fans' shoulders, and it did for me at that time. But as I've grown up with it, I definitely do agree that I don't think it's like the scariest movie ever made, but at the same time, you you do get chills watching certain elements of it. Because if nothing else, mm -hmm. like the... As I've grown older, I don't necessarily share the scary, terrified, like, oh my god, this is so horrifying, this idea, to me as much as, like, I get the frustration and the sort of exhaustion of, like, uh, Ellen Burstyn and Jason Miller's characters, where it just feels like they are fucking done with the bullshit they've been dealing with, and it's like, yeah, I get that, <laughs> and that only makes the horror all the more pronounced, where it's just like, oh god, now this? I'm already exhausted, now there's, like, a demon possessing a kid? Fuck, man. I gotta, like, work every day. <laughs> I got five demons to feed. <laughs>
I'm kind of in a similar spot because I've never found this all that scary. One, what this time watching through, it finally is the thing that made me realize. I think this is the best performed horror movie ever made because mm-hmm. every actor is giving such an amazing performance. Jason Miller, Linda Blair, Ellen Burstyn's doing career best. Lee J. Cobb as the lieutenant. Uh, Max von Sydow being. 80 years old for the first time for the next 50 years. <laughs> yeah. Like everybody is firing on all cylinders in this uh, performance wise. And it's what carries this movie for me. Uh, and I want to ask in terms of the thing, it's a gap I've noticed with this movie uh, in terms of people who are really scared by it and people who aren't. You're at the risk of generalizing. You are Italian American, Sicilian American, if you prefer that. Uh, did, were you raised Roman Catholic? I'm technically, like, baptized Catholic, but I was never really raised as much. I was very agnostic, I guess. That's kind of, like, what I've uh, ultimately sort of felt. And I think that's what's interesting about this is that Friedkin himself is not religious at all. And he even said that, like, I had to compartmentalize that kind of element of it. And I think that's what's interesting about this movie is that it kind of approaches religion as sort of, like, well, it's only because we've gone through every single possible other explanation through, like, all the doctors and uh-huh. bursts and visits and all this other stuff. It's just, like, at the very last resort, even, like, when, you know, whether it's the doctors or that originally suggests the exorcism or even, like, Jason Miller, like, it's just, like, well, it's kind of bullshit, but I don't know. It might, like, get around of it if you do like this, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a movie that is kind of agnostic about the religion element of it. Correct, and, in fact, I... I also really love the doctor scenes because I'm a sucker for the let's try to address this supernatural thing going on in a scientific way, try to quantify it. And even when even after 10 minutes and no one finds anything, I love that trope and I wish movies would bring it back. But part of the reason I want to ask is because I kind of grew up similarly, you know, Irish American uh, families, both my parents were raised Roman Catholic. And uh, my joke is that I am. I've been a lapsed Catholic since around the first trimester. Uh, so I was also raised in an agnostic household. Hell, I was raised in an atheistic household. I am arguably the most spiritual person in my family. But I've noticed a gap where people I know who, even our age or older, who were raised Catholic, they find this movie absolutely horrifying. And people who weren't tend to be more the, I respect this more than I'm actually scared by this. So it, that is an interesting thing of it was able to capture a religion of people being horrified in a weird way. That's true. Yeah. To the point where even like that, that's what kind of got people's ire at the time. And even why Linda Blair had to have like bodyguards because like there were religious extremists who were just like, you're making Satan seem attractive in this way. And it's just like, I don't know. Like if I, if I saw this movie and I was at all religious, I would just be like, Oh no, I gotta go to church every Sunday or whatever. <laughs> Cause this is like, this demon might be in like the little girl next door or whatever. And it's upsetting. But I think that's the thing that I do respect really about the movie is that like, it feels so grounded in this fascinating way to where like when Jason Miller is like talking with his uh, fellow, I believe it's Dyer, right? Or like the other, oh, no, it's the other guy, it's the other father, um, Father Tom, uh-huh. when he's talking to him um, at the bar and it's just like, I don't know, I gotta get the fuck out of here, I gotta get like, closer to my mom, I just, I can't, I can't be here, I think I'm losing my faith, like, that feels, like, so naturalistic and real a conversation about just, like, somebody who's lived with religion for so long, and ultimately kind of being like, I don't know, is it bullshit, and the thing that makes him realize it's not bullshit is this horrible, upsetting event that, 
like, why would God allow, necessarily, just like a child to be, you know, possessed by a demon and have it, all these horrible, upsetting things happen? It's just like, well, the only thing that proves religion is real is Old Testament horrifying shit. It's just like, yeah, it's real, but in a way we're like, uh, God doesn't really have much control, and even at the end of this, like, the demon gets out of the girl, but also the priest dies, so it's like, we're just like, ah, I guess, you know, nobody wins in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, it's the 70s, man. You can't have a happy ending in the 70s. That's true. Yeah, if your main character flies off to have a beautiful time, there has to be a title card that says all his friends died in Vietnam. <laughs> true. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, so I, I guess like for you, why would you say like this, so this feels like the best acted horror movie, especially considering there've been a lot of contenders of recent sort of the H24, your hereditaries and such. What do you think makes this still feel like 50 years later, like the best acted horror movie? I think it might just be quantity and quality is just so high. Like there's, it's not just Linda Blair is really good. It's not just Ellen Burson's really good. Like I said, Lee J. Cobb as the lieutenant, it's a backbencher role, but he's giving his best performance since like 12 Angry Men. Jason Miller is someone who I don't think ever like quite achieved these same heights. And I'm not just saying that because I'm having trouble naming another thing that he's in. And I, Max von Sydow, is this Max von Sydow's like first, uh, big breakthrough with mainstream audiences um i mean i guess in terms of like maybe american audiences he's been in like fucking like seventh seal and shit like 20 years prior to this and stuff like that but i mean i would say this is probably at least like the first movie that introduces him widely to american audiences and gets him to be the swedish bad guy in many a film after this all the way up to force awakens a character I am 100% convinced was written for the guy who played Wedge. I believe that's actually true. I've heard that that's actually the case, that it was originally Wedge, and he was like, nah, I don't want to be in this. I'll take that Rise of Skywalker paycheck a couple <laughs> of later, though. I'll do that. No, no, you see, I would have to be in three shots for this, as compared to one shot. And that shot <laughs> better true. not be more than four seconds. <laughs> very true, very true. But, yeah, I think... It, it, it's just the fact that, like, it's that sort of frustration that I'm referring to that I think really makes this, like, so well acted to me. Like, seeing Ellen Burstyn go through the ringer here, where initially she plays this, like, actress who is seems to be, like, used to getting what she wants and kind of has, like, this more privileged life. And then as, like, everything crumbles around her and it's without, like, any kind of, like, solid logical reasoning of just, like, oh, is it, like, a medical condition? Is she psychologically disturbed? What's going on here? And all culminating, especially in that sequence where, like, her and the two guys who are visiting the house try and go up to Reagan's room, and it just throws into chaos. Like, everything's being thrown around, and that's where you get, like, the masturbation with the cross and everything else like that. Immediately gets you to that sense of, like, okay, all this frustration is eventually just, like, there's no other explanation here except the unthinkable thing that could possibly be happening. And I, I think that's that's the thing that really sells. It's just like all that frustration beautifully builds up to just realizing that, yeah, we're dealing with something otherworldly. And even when the otherworldly stuff happens, there's still like these moments where we have to kind of like pause. Like I love my probably my favorite sh scene in this movie is just the bit where uh, Max von Sydow and Jason Miller have like gone through half of the exorcism. And they're like, let's take five. And then they go over to the stairs, and they're both just, like, sitting there, like, in a complete haze, like, oh, fuck me, what's happening? I can't believe this. Like, that feels so real in the middle of this crazy situation that they have to, like, fucking stop for a second and take a breather. A friend of mine, uh, Jason Fisher, every time he's having a tough day on Instagram, just posts a photo of Jason Miller uh, just sitting down on, on the sofa, like, exhaling. 
and every time I watch it, I see I chuckle. Yeah, um, but of course, there's there's also, you know, some of the more infamous things. How do you feel like some of the stuff with, like, Linda Blair has held up necessarily with, like, her transformation from adorable girl to, like, this demonic monster? Sort of the stuff that's been parodied a lot. Has that sort of cultural osmosis hurt any of that stuff for you, or is it only strengthened? Not in the slightest. It is my favorite part of the movie is watching Linda Blair slowly almost decay. And then when the old voice, the new voice takes over, I always get chills. I would even say one of the best ADR performances probably ever, because there were enough people who believed it that they thought it was just Linda Blair's voice. And instead of uh, Mercedes McCambridge. Yeah. Unsung hero, almost literally. <laughs> but uh, I think that everything about that is a great job. And every as she is slowly like decaying and as the priests are starting to see her and when the exorcism is starting up and the uh is is he actually called Pazuzu in this movie or is that not until two and three they don't call him Pazuzu in one which I think is a, a, a wise choice because that yes. name, regardless of being real is fucking silly and every time I hear it I can only think of that one Futurama thing with uh, Pazuzu Pazuzu Yes, that's all I can think of. I have an embarrassing anecdote. So when I was in eighth grade and trying to write a horror movie, and I was just like taking things from other horror movies I saw, I had a character named Pazuzu, and he says very earnestly, I am not your friend, I am Pazuzu. And I am glad that was never filmed. Now it's preserved on wax permanently on the show. <laughs> I'll make sure to send over to the Pentagon to preserve. Uh, oh, uh, I'm going to need every copy of this recording when we're done. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, I think the, the stuff with Blair, I agree. Like, that was the stuff. I think I'll say this much. I think the stuff that's in the theatrical cut, I think, works very well. I don't really like most of the stuff they add in for the the version you've ever seen. Like, the spider walk, I'm not a fan of. I get why people sort of were like, we're laughing at that. Like some of the like less interested people in the exorcist, like the, Oh, it's not that scary. Like the spider walk looks silly. I agree with that. Quite frankly, I think in the movie itself, like the stuff that even is more upsetting to me is all the stuff before she even officially like transforms like that bit where she is like on the bed and she's like going up. Like she's in like a fucking uh, reclining chair up and down. Let's go out of control. Just like, mother, mother. That is deeply upsetting to me. Just seeing, and hearing, especially that young girl go through that. And, you know, especially considering, uh, William Friedkin, uh, wasn't, you know, the most safety precautionary guy about her or Ellen Burstyn. You mean the guy who just filmed a car chase without getting permits doesn't care that much about safety? No. Uh, this might be controversial, but yes, I would say that a renegade filmmaker, William Friedkin, uh, <laughs> didn't really give a shit about people's safety that much. Man, he chose to retire at just the right time. <laughs> I mean, that's after Killer Joe. <laughs> you gotta go out on that note. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if he decides to make a movie again, I'm just gonna say, no, you are staying in front of a green screen. I don't like green screen movies, you are staying in front of one because I don't trust you not to nearly get someone killed. What would you say is sort of like, if you had to pick like the scariest scene of this movie for you? The one that's coming to mind is actually when she's just starting to get possessed at the party, and she just, like, walks into there, and she just says to the astronaut, you're gonna die up there. And it's like, that, they never come back to that. That's never, like, told as, like, uh, like, there's never a payoff, and it's just sort of implied, like, oh, the guy is gonna die up there. This is just a thing that's going to happen that they can't, can't control. It gives me a chill. Yeah, I think particularly just the reaction from that crowd 
um, where just like she starts peeing and everyone is just like, oh, the party's done. Like everyone was having fun and that stuff, which also just shout out such a weird eclectic group of people for that party where you've got an astronaut, you've got a singing priest, you've got the director guy who's calling the Swiss guy a Nazi, <laughs> just a weird gr- bunch of people at that fucking party of Ellen Burst. It's just like a very interesting friend group that she well, has. I think that's one of the nice lived in things about it, because if you are an actress from presumably either New York City or the West Coast who is doing a thing in Georgetown, all your actor and entertainment buddies aren't going to be there unless they're already working on the thing. So you just have to kind of be buddy with who the social class is of D.C. And that's going to be politicians, lobbyists and astronauts. And I guess the priest. Yeah, for sure. Though, shout out, we do technically get a bit more with that character in uh, the one of the two William Peter Blatty directed movies, The Ninth Configuration. Like, one of the characters is that astronaut. So it's technically like a weird spinoff of this movie. Huh. It's really weird. That movie's bizarre. <laughs> so I did not know about that Ninth Configuration until I uh, was going through his uh, his filmography on Letterboxd and... Also, his writing screenplay credits, fucking bizarre. It's like the Ninth Configuration, Exorcist 3, but also it's the A Shot in the Dark, the second Pink Panther movie, Mastermind, the Zero Mostel movie. It's a lot. He did a lot of, like, comedy stuff in the 60s. And then he was just like, I'm going to write this book that's extremely upsetting and gets a lot of, like, becomes a bestseller. Then adapt that into a movie, get nominated for an Oscar, then make the Ninth Configuration, Exorcist 3, and then do nothing until I die, <laughs> basically. Though, for the record, hot take, as much as I do really like this movie, I slightly prefer Exorcist 3 a bit more. I think that one is genuinely scary for me, and I think has some of, like, my a great mix of sort of, like, this horror and even comedic elements that really works for me. I think that movie rules. I don't know if you've seen Exorcist 3 or not. I have. Uh, I don't fully remember it, except for I re- remembering really liking George C. Scott in it. Rarely is there a casting up in a horror sequel of going from Lee J. Cobb to George C. Scott. Typically you go for who did the Twilight Zone get when Lee J. Cobb was busy. Right, that's true. Um, but yeah, at, at the same time though, I do love Lee J. Cobb in this movie, I agree with you. It's just like a Sutan who's a movie fan with like this conversation he has with Jason Milner has a, a lot of that like really nice sort of like humor that's padded out throughout this movie that like allows the movie to kind of breathe a bit where you have just like the, the back and forth, but just like, oh, do you like films? I like, you know, the discussion, the critique. I like talking about movies after he just wants a movie buddy. That's all he wants. Yeah. He's just a movie buddy. <laughs> um... And, uh, yeah, and even later on when he's talking with Ellen Burstyn about the whole thing, it's just like, oh, hey, my daughter really wants uh, an autograph. She's like, oh, who's, what's her name? I'm kidding, it's for me. <laughs> it's such a good bit. And, like, it allows you to, like, humanize these people that are going through all this horrible stuff, just, like, these weird bits of humor. Even, like, Jason Milner has that, too, with, like, when he's talking to Ellen Burstyn. How, what do you recommend for an exorcism? Get a time machine. <laughs> like, go back to the 16th century, back when we did exorcisms. The movie is, like, being weirdly fair, and I guess not weirdly fair, but it's being remarkably fair to the Catholic Church and saying, like, hey, hey, this is an outdated thing. We're trying to modernize it. We're trying to not be this thing anymore. Like, the Catholic Church, honestly, they were mad at the best possible representation they could have gotten for a movie like this. That's true, yeah, because it is extremely fair. Even when, like, Max von Sydow comes in and he's supposed to, like, the guy who knows everything, he once again is very much treated like a guy who, like, 
is crumbling at this. Like, when he first gets that announcement of the, the summoning of just, like, hey, you're going to come over and do the exorcism, and all he has to do is just kind of, like, crumble a bit. And he's like, oh, God, what, we're doing this after he met with Pazuzu and everything. And, I mean, uh, Shadow, while we're talking about him and, like, you know, the Linda Blair stuff, all this, Dick Smith's makeup in this movie is astonishing. Uh-huh. Whether it is, like, the over-the-top stuff like we're talking about with Reagan and how she decays sort of gradually over the movie. Or even, like you mentioned, Max von Sydow looks like he would for, like, the rest of his career in this movie. To the degree that, like, I had no idea that Max von Sydow could be young. Because he always looked like he was at least, like, 75 years old for the last, like, 50 years of his career. (laughs) For this last watch for this, I was specifically looking, like, are there faults in the makeup? And... If you're really, really, really looking, you can kind of see it, but it's still like, did this get a makeup nomination? Do you know off the top of your head, or do you have a list on here? Because I, I am it is one also one of the best makeup horror movies for even with things that you don't typically think of, like the creepy effects makeup. Actually, no, I'm looking at it here. It did not get a makeup nomination, which is very surprising. I mean, the only thing it won for was Blatty for the screenplay, but there's other things in here that I completely get it being nominated for, maybe even winning. Like, a a thing that I noticed this time was just the sound design is incredible in this movie, where there's so many things that feel like, oh, like the rustling of leaves is like uh, Alan Burstyn's like walking down the road or even something like there's a point where Miller is talking to like one of the other priests and their conversation gets cut off by like an airplane jet going over. Just like a really simple thing that immediately like gives you once again that immersed lived and feel. Even like probably my the scariest thing of the movie to me is uh, Miller's uh, whole dream sequence where he sees his mom on the subway come in and come out, and then you see, like, Captain Howdy a bit. The fact that that entire thing is, like, kind of scored to his breathing, I think is, like, Uh perfect. Because, like, it's not actually a fake-out scare. It's just a genuine, like, oh, you're in the middle of this dream, but it feels like you're kind of living in it because you have that breathing underneath. Especially considering, like, despite Tube Their Bells being so popular for this movie, it only plays, like, twice. And one time, it's just when Ellen Burstyn's walking down the street, and the other time is, like, at the very end when they look down the stairs and then, like, leads into the credits. There's not a lot of, like, score for this movie. I know there was a score originally commissioned and then they just got rid of it. Good call. Like, this is also very atmospheric. It's... I feel like this is also kind of a transition movie, now that I'm thinking about it. For the kind of old-school style of horror movie, like, not just, like, the Universal movies or the B-movies or your gothic movies like The Haunting, but... This is sort of like when the the auteur director also does horror. Like, Ari Aster owes a lot to this movie. I think all of A24 horror owes a lot to this movie, quite frankly. Because <laughs> Friedkin talked about it a lot. Like, when him and Blatty were talking about making this movie, it was like, we never talked about it as, like, a spooky movie, a horror movie. And we talked about it as just, like, a film and the story that's, like, upsetting and all this other stuff. This is, I think, one of the great examples of, like, a director who isn't, like, a horror person directing a horror movie and coming to it and just delivering something really interesting and fascinating because Friedkin didn't really do any horror even after this like he'd go into thrillers obviously with like Cruisin even Killer Joe has like elements of like sort of like upsetting spookiness but he never really quite went back to horror I find oh except for The Guardian which was an infamous disaster that's one of the few <laughs> so uh you know it could go either way it could be a Guardian it could be this but yeah I think that's the kind of perspective I think adds an interesting refreshing element to horror that I think you know, we 
often get more subject to like, oh, like a James Wan who becomes like very specifically into horror, which I think is fun. I always like that kind of thing. But it's always also interesting to see like a person who isn't a traditionally a horror filmmaker make their own horror movie it gives us a completely different flavor. In this case, like one that would last for like 50 years to some degree in influence. It's weird that he is such a, for all intents and purposes, a one-off horror filmmaker who did have that impact. But like, here's how big his impact is. I just remembered... Uh, the Blu-ray of The Babadook, he is the blurb on it. And I want to say like several times on the uh, on the cover because he was a fan of the movie. It's like, oh, if he made The Exorcist, he has some clout with this. That's true. As a follow-up, obviously, you know, to The French Connection, I think it is kind of interesting because that's also a movie that I think established a lot of interesting things, but I think that one, I would say, doesn't quite hold up for me as well because I think... I still like that movie. I still think it's fun, but you can tell it like this feels so much more like, oh, I just really appreciate that this movie set up. Like Roy Scheider got a nomination just for playing like, you know, the supportive, like best friend cop in a way. Cause it's like, we haven't seen this before in a fucking cop movie. This is completely different. Um, but I think like that one is more just like, oh, it's the first, but not necessarily the best versus the exorcist is still one of the best of the, especially these like possession horror movies. I think this is our first like notable difference in in like a way we've agree- talked about a movie tonight. That's the one where I'm like, oh, I actually really like the French Connection, but a big chunk of it's just I like looking at New York in the 1970s. I really like when I see Gene Hackman crossing a street, and I go, oh, that is actually just straight up on my block. Cool. No, oh, that's right, because you're a fancy New York coastal elite. Up there. Oh, yeah, the coastal elites up here. Let me tell you about the time I shook Hakeem Jeffries' hand and he was very uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Not a joke. (laughs) (laughs) It's too specific a Casey thing to be a joke, necessarily. I have one more very specific, just because it's very funny. Uh, On my birthday, which was the day before your birthday this year, we did karaoke and John Wilson was in the audience. (laughs) I can't wait for you to show up in John Wilson season three. <laughs> we can't rule it out. I said I like a show as he was leaving the bathroom and he was very uncomfortable. I mean, well, I get that. That guy, dude, seems <laughs> like he just lives in uncomfortableness necessarily. Um, but yeah, so how do you feel like this works as sort of like a best picture follow up from French Connection, though, given you like French Connection so much? I like that it's clearly just a. I took this as my next project, not necessarily because I'm on top of the world, but because I am I think this is a really interesting idea, and he, he wanted to pursue it. I like that it's so aesthetically different than the French Connection. Like, French Connection is almost like using the techniques that we were starting to get on documentary uh, footage that, or, like, footage we were seeing on the news, handheld, quick cuts, very edited, and this is atmospheric slower uh, with a slower rhythm and reminiscent more of say a Robert Wise movie than an uh, than something like French Connection like French Connection is pushing forward this is also pushing forward but this is pushing forward with 
an aesthetic that is reminiscent, if that makes sense. No, yeah, I get that. And I think it, it also interestingly works because you can tell, like we're saying, that he's bringing some of that naturalism that he had had with, like, the French connection in terms of shooting New York, like, to this, where the way we see, like, Georgetown, I think, is, like, such an incredible location where there's all these, like, big Gothic buildings. And also even, like, the residential areas have, like, this huge, massive quality to it, even those stairs. Like, I love how those stairs sort of play this ominous role, like, early on when the director dies, the, the kind of like connect the dots together where like there's the establishing shot where you see like a bunch of police crowd down near there and then uh, Alan Burstyn goes up and sees that the window's open closes it and they find out like oh yeah the director was here for a bit while the babysitter left and you just instantly put that together as soon as it's just like he died at the steps and that just gives you immediately just like oh this like very small thing ends up connecting it all even also something where like the big effects are going on and there's like a bit of a naturalism like my favorite sort of effect that I'm still shocked and I don't know how they quite did this is the bit in like right before the ending where Miller has become possessed and you see his face has been kind of like demonic and you can see his eyes and within a shot he shakes it off and it's just like no and then he jumps out the window that shot still amazes me I don't know how the fuck they did that, but it feels once again very natural, just like it's all occurring in camera, and I'm like stunned by that. I'm now I'm wondering if it's just he had to like hold his face a certain way to highlight the makeup, and then when he moved it, it was no longer quite as visible or something like that. Either that, or it's like a really good edit. Like it's an yeah. amazing edit, if not that. <laughs> eh, maybe it's computers. That's true. <laughs> William Friedkin was in one of those, like, 70s computer labs that had, like, 500 giant rectangles around him, making that effect work. <laughs> For sure, that's what happened. One question I want to ask you. Does the Iraq bit work for you? Um, if I had to say, I think the Iraq bit is probably, like, my least sort of, like, favorite part of this movie. I like the atmospheric look of it, and I like kind of, like, the the build-up to seeing Pazuzu, but at the same time, the whole revelation later, like, oh, it is Pazuzu at the end, like, I don't know if it was worth having, like, this whole opening bid in Iraq necessarily, but do you disagree with that? I largely agree. Uh, I think it's neat in that it's different, but like most times, Americans go into Iraq, I think it's largely a mistake. <laughs> was that just a setup so you could do that fucking joke, Casey? Was that why you asked that question? <laughs> <laughs> it was not, but I did think of it when I was thinking through that. Uh, when I was like making my notes, watching the movie, it's like, God, why do I dislike when Americans go to Iraq? <laughs> <laughs> Don't we? <laughs> but anyway, Casey, we've been talking about this movie for quite a while, and we do have another movie that goes on for quite a while we have to talk about. So your final thoughts on <laughs> The Exorcist. While I don't love it as much as uh, its canonical importance, it is such a canonically important movie, I and I cannot actually find a fault in it, give or take in Iraq. There is nothing it does actually wrong narratively or aesthetically. I just do not uh, engage with it to the way I do other horror movies, some older, some newer. But it's still very good. It is still a four stars on Letterboxd. It is still excellent. When the exorcism gets going, oh boy, does it get going. I love the sets. I love the vibe. I love the acting. Every time I talk about the movie, I feel like I love it more than I actually do. But it's still very, very good. And I still like, it's still a thing like, oh, if you have not seen it, you should see it. Even if it's homework, this is rewarding homework. Yeah, for sure. I think especially just, we didn't really talk about it, but the amount of fucking possession movies that have come out 
since this movie mm-hmm. that are still just doing this fucking movie. Like, what was the one from, like, last Halloween with Colin Salmon that was literally just, like, praying with the devil or whatever the fuck it was? Even now, there's, like, what? There's that one with Russell Crowe now that they're, like, <laughs> I saw the trailer for recently. It's just like, oh, we're still doing this. We're still trying to chase that exorcist tale. And I think few movies have ever, like, either done as well or even a bit better, aside from, I would still say, Exorcist 3. Um, but the other sequels are included in that, like, no, you failed absolutely <laughs> to get anywhere near this. Uh, but, yeah, you can tell just, like, that element alone that, like, we're still 50 years later trying to chase that tale. Even we're going to be getting a legacy sequel of this movie later this year from uh, Dan- David Gordon Green with Ellen Burstyn coming back. They're going to they're gonna try and Halloween 2018 it. I'm sure you're super excited about that, Casey. I mean, I am a big fan of Halloween 2018, and I even think this, the next ones are interesting, but David Gordon Green, you're trying me. You are really, really trying me. Yeah, for sure, and that's going to be another trilogy, and I'm sure that'll be fun. I've heard the series is good, though. The one that ended up, ran two seasons. I wanted to ask you about that, because I, I only watched, I want to say I watched the first episode in 2015, so I... I have zero memory of if I watched that or one of the other, because it came out right when we really started the boom of show that's an adaptation of a famous movie from decades prior. Like, I can't tell you if I watched the first episode of that or the first episode of Rosemary's Baby. Right, yeah, for sure. I've heard that one's good, and it has Gina Davis in it, so I'm even more fascinated. Ooh, she's my favorite long lady. (laughs) I mean, of course. But yeah. The Exorcist, hot take, great movie, wonderful movie, a very interesting best picture follow-up. But let's uh, completely go the opposite direction of interesting best picture follow-up with our second feature, The Postman. In the future, after the Great War, our civilization lies in ruin. Government does not exist. Technology has been erased. And everything man remembers is gone. Out of the chaos, a lawless army will arise to prey on the few survivors. But to a people who have lost their hope, he will give them courage. I have a feeling about you. He will restore their memories of the past. It's the individual that counts. I want him dealt with. He will unite them. You have a gift, postman. With a message of freedom. You want a war? I'll give you a war! Kevin Costner. Academy Award-winning director of Dances with Wolves brings you an epic new vision of our future. There's gonna be new laws! There's gonna be peace! So, The Postman also came out around Christmas time, but in 1997, December 25th, 1997, uh, from director, producer, star Kevin Costner, and uh, this was a movie that I picked, and this was a definitely a movie that, like, was such a punchline when I was younger. Like, it was this and Waterworld were both very much punchlines of, like, oh, self-absorbed, like, Vanity Project, like, went highly over budget, had, like, very bloated, infamous disasters. Um, I'm going to say this much. Uh, we did a commentary for Waterworld on our Patreon, and if you've heard that, um, you probably know that that movie, despite all of its problems, is still fun. And so kind of interesting. Um, the Postman ain't that <laughs> whatsoever. But Casey, 
I tasked you to watch this, and I will once again apologize. Uh, but <laughs> I'll forgive okay. you one year. Okay. <laughs> but uh, what did you think of The Postman, in case you, they couldn't tell from your reaction? <laughs> so, I think this is just right up the worst movie I've had to watch for your podcast. A podcast that, by definition, I'm supposed to watch a bad movie every time, E.T. notwithstanding. Right. But... <laughs> But my god, this was one of the most trying experiences I've had in quite a while. Because I've had an experience as I've gotten quote-unquote older where I have had way more patience for long movies. I used to think of a three-hour movie as a two-hour movie that is a little indulgent and it takes up its time. And now I realize so many three-hour movies are actually movies where, oh, this actually can't be any shorter. If it was shorter, they would have made it shorter. But this is actually a well-oiled machine. And I was really ready to be a contrarian and say that about The Postman. And there were a couple moments in the first 20 minutes I was thinking, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Nope. I There was a point I was so zoned out, I started thinking about paint drying. Yeah, I didn't mention when we started talking about The Postman, but... It's crucial uh, that we talk about the fact that this is Kevin Costner's follow-up to Dances with Wolves, which won Best Picture in 1990, um, and I would argue was another movie that is incredibly long and I think could stand to be much shorter than it is. I don't know. Have you seen Dances with Wolves, Casey? I actually have not. never seen Dances with Wolves. Uh, one day I will watch it. Maybe. It's like the 8,000th movie I ever want to check out. Yeah, it's pretty low on sort of like the Best Picture winners you want to follow up on this year just like uh, i don't know i have given myself a assignment for the year that once a month i will watch what i'm calling a homework movie which is something that i know i should watch it's not just i've never had the chance it's something i've actively put off maybe i'll decide dance with wolves is one of those but probably not that's probably my 2026 horror or homework movie i mean it is a horror movie to a certain extent um (laughs) but yeah i just think like that movie feels very much like it's it feels like the definition of like an Oscar bait movie to me in terms of like the the length and the languishness and all this other stuff but um I have a newfound respect for it because at the very least Dances with Wolves is trying to tackle like interesting subject matter uh I don't think it does it well but at the very least like okay you're trying to say something important meanwhile The Postman which if you're unaware of what this is out there uh because this is a long forgotten movie um The Postman uh, takes place in the distant future of 2013. It takes place in, like, the post-apocalypse where, you know, at the very beginning, Kevin Costner with his horse, and he's saying, oh, this water is very dicey. It could just be about as, like, healthy as turpentine to drink. Um, so everything's really gone to shit. And um, as he is wa- roaming around the wastelands, he ends up getting uh, captured by this group of evil militants who are very clear, like, neo-Nazis led by Will Patton. And uh, he also runs into, like, a group of people that he uh, ends up trying to help out. And um, along the way, it basically becomes a movie where everyone is like, oh man, Kevin Costner, you're the only one who can save us with traditional American values. Like, literally, he takes a fucking postman outfit from a corpse and becomes the postman. It's just like, oh, Kevin Costner, you need to spread the good word by sharing stories with everyone, sharing, like, these communications with people. And we will be inspired to follow suit. And also Olivia Williams wants to get knocked up. So she wants your perfect seed. One of the things I was almost on board with was when she was saying like, no, it will be his child. He will be the father. It's just going to come from your seed. And then by the end, of, I was like, okay, that's an interesting nuanced take. It gives her some personality. 
And then at the end of the movie, when she's saying, like, you're never going to see your child, it's like, you, you had it and you lost the movie. You forgot that within, like, an hour after that endless, endless movie, um, that <laughs> husband ends up dying. So I mean, she's just like, oh, no, he's gone. There's only one other man I could be with. It's Kevin Costner. <laughs> it it makes me think of in, like, season 23 of The Simpsons, when Edna Krabappel and Ned Flanders get together, there's a one-off line where Rod Flanders calls Krabappel do-over mommy. <laughs> <laughs> right, but, he's do over daddy, but he's the best do over daddy possible because it's Daddy yeah. Costner. And also, this movie, what's the what's the term that people use when it's just you see something you feel bad for and then they die horribly, like shoot the dog or whatever it is. This movie shoots the dog so many fucking times. Yep, there's a lot of that. Um, Giovanni like, Robisi is one of those. Mm-hmm. Is one of like the eight guys. Yeah, uh, like or like when uh. When Kevin Costner's escaping, I thought he was going to escape with that other guy, and nope, that other guy is just also dead, and his corpse is an obstacle for the guy who's shooting at Costner while Costner runs away. Yeah, they might as well have all had, like, post-apocalyptic, like, wallets that were just like, here's my entire family. Right before <laughs> and they get killed. It's about as, like, telegraphed. One of the weirdest experiences I had watching this was going like, huh, this fe- was this an inspiration for Fallout? Because it's, like, when he is, like, standing on the roof of a gas station, having a beer and looking up at the sky, it's like, okay, you found that? Are you going to find your power armor in there? Were you ever a Fallout guy? I've played Fallout 4 quite a bit. Um, but, but yeah, I get, I mean, then, yeah, I think that's also the case even with, like, a water world feels very much reminiscent of that. Like, you can see any sort of, like, post-apocalyptic movie from, like, Mad Max through to Waterworld, I would argue, inspired heavily, like, a lot of the Fallout things. But I'm even curious, Casey, what's your relationship with Kevin Costner? I don't know if you have any kind of real, like, connection or thought or take on Costner, necessarily. He is, for better or for worse, his generation's Jimmy Stewart in that there is an all-shucks nature to him. Like, when I think of a moment in a Kevin Costner movie, it's a moment in a movie I love, of JFK, where uh, one of his, it's right, it's his first scene, and one of his uh, one of his workers says, boss, the president's been shot, and it cuts close on the, uh, on the clock saying it's 1235, and then it cuts, zooms in on him, and he goes, oh, no. This is slander to our, that his generation's actual Jimmy Stewart of Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is totally the Jimmy Stewart analog to me of, like, that era. Yes, in terms of cultural identity, in terms of, like, the literal line deliveries. I feel like he does line deliveries like Jimmy Stewart does, I guess. I mean, it, that would require Kevin Costner to be, like, interesting. Because that's always been my thing. Is like I just find him very flat and dull as an actor, <laughs> anytime. Because like Jimmy Stewart would have like personality, like oh gosh, gee whiz, and just Costner is so much more like oh god, gee whiz, I can't believe that's happening. That's happening right there. Um, I I wish he was a Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Do you like Bull Durham? Out of curiosity, I really like Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins in Bull Durham. I don't like him that much in it. He's always like a weakling to me, and like most of the things. Like I would agree with you. I think the best use of him is like a JFK. Because that's an insane Oliver Stone movie, and it needs some kind of grounding, so we're going to have Kevin Costner there to, like, give some kind of grounding as, like, we do weird fucking proto-QAnon crazy conspiracy theory shit. We have to have Kevin Costner in the middle there to, like, ground everything. But largely, I'm not a fan of his, myself. I think I would also say I think he works better as a supporting performance, because, like, even though he is kind of a interesting like watermark for all the things it does right or wrong i think he's a great paw kenton man of steel 
I would agree with that. Yes. I think he does work better as he's gotten older in being a secondary or tertiary character in various things. Now, has he ever gotten nominated for Best Supporting Actor? I feel I would not be shocked if there's a Best Supporting Actor nomination in within the next 10 years for Kevin Costner because someone figured out something good with him. Well, I mean, I would even say that's the case with like someone like Molly's Game. I think he's the best part of Molly's Game to me uh, when, when he comes in. I think he instantaneously just adds a whole different vibe to that movie that I think is fascinating. I, I would agree with you that I think as sort of like an elder statesman who comes in to a movie that already has been going on, I think he works... Um, as opposed to, like, when he has to, like, be kind of toe-to-toe. Because, like, this is sort of, like, in the weird gap between Dances with Wolves and this is him and stuff like The Bodyguard or um, Tin Cup or Waterworld, like I mentioned earlier, where he's, like, at the height of his powers. And I think all of that kind of lead-up is what leads to, like, The Postman, where, like, we talk a lot about sort of, like, big ego-driven vanity projects on this show, and sometimes, you know, I wonder, like, is it a bit warranted or unwarranted that, like, we kind of criticize? This is straight-up, like, masturbatory in, like, some of the most, like, unsettling ways, but not even, like, fun ways either. What I'm talking about with, like, Costner being this guy in this movie who's, like, inspires everyone with, like, I am a postman sending letters to everybody, and then immediately rallies people to, I guess, create, like, the post office sort of system within, like, a season? And you have, like, fucking 20 people who are, like, delivering mail to people? Somehow? Like, the despite how long this movie is, what's going on in a timeline thing with this is, like, off the fucking rails. I have no <laughs> idea how long this is. <laughs> no, he just goes away for a bit, and suddenly he turns out he accidentally reestablished trade in communities. So here's the thing, and this goes back to what you're saying with him being, like, wrong for this movie. I had a realization around, like, minute 45 when he is talking to Skull, where I was like, one, I thought because it's established he's a Shakespearean actor... He's going to steal the skull and he's going to start to say this is going to be his Yorick when he does Hamlet next. Like, I thought that's where that was going. But he's not desperate enough. He needs to be more one step ahead of all the people who are trying to shoot him. And he needs to have a little bit more of a chip on his shoulder. He needs to be like the Kurt Russell uh, character for in the 1980s. Or he needs to be Han Solo. And what I finally realized is if you want to give this movie an extra half star immediately, it should have been Jeff Bridges. If he cast Jeff Bridges, Jeff Bridges could probably pull off the sarcasm a little bit more, and he could probably pull off the grifter bit a little bit more. Right, because that's the weird thing is that, like, I didn't establish this earlier, but you're right, he's an actor initially, and he performs Shakespeare. There's a lot of fucking Shakespeare shout-outs that they do between him and Will Patton in this movie. Um, but, like, that should have been the element where there's sort of like this cockiness and the sort of like, oh, I'm like pulling one over and everybody, but then you kind of start believing the bit and everyone else believes in the bit. But when you have concert just kind of like being very flat, it doesn't really work, especially that like this would inspire everybody, like Lorenz Tate to be able to be like, you know what, you inspired me so much that I'm going to like become lead postman. I'm going to do all the work. But then say, no, you inspired everything. Like, what, Lorenz Tate, you did all of this yourself. He was off, like, in the fucking cabin with Olivia <laughs> Williams. You did all the work. But you, this white guy's just like, thank you, young black man. Yes, I did everything. <laughs> Even though I wasn't here for any of this. 
it's so frustrating because I was really trying to point out, like, I feel like you can fix this, but it's not like, okay, change these three things and you can get it to passable. It's every single scene. You have to, like, okay, this should have been shot this way, or this character should have done this, or had this energy. I kept on accidentally thinking of bits I thought the movie was going to do. Like, when he falls through the bridge uh, with the body and you see the body float up... I thought he was going to play dead, and then Will Patton was going to order someone to shoot at him. Then when they start shooting at what they think is a corpse, he starts swimming because he has to get out of the way. I thought that was going to be the reveal there. But no, he just comes up from the water and starts swimming. And it's like, oh, I accidentally thought of a better scene than this movie. Casey, that sounds like a really well-executed idea of like a, a setup and a payoff as opposed to... Just having everything drag ass. It's not dragging ass. The ass disappears 20 minutes into the movie. Well, that's a good point. Right. If it was dragging ass, it'd be more exciting. That's very true. Um, But I will say, you know, in terms of like the stuff that I agree with that everything would need to change, I would have two asterisks to that. One, the weird Tom Petty cameo, which we should talk about because it's insane. Yes. Kevin Costner goes over to this town that's like near a dam. And he's like, oh, I, I need to talk to the mayor. And the mayor comes up and it's Tom Petty, clear as day. And fucking Kevin Costner's like, I think you used to know you. I think you're you're famous, right? It's like, I used to be. So he's playing himself, I guess, Tom Petty yes, in the post-apocalypse. There were two things that just filled me with joy. And the uh, that was one of them. The other one was when he's asked who the president is, he just says Richard Starkey. I fucking cackled. Yep. Right, I, I knew just because like, that's a Beatles reference because that's Ringo's actual name. And then that his thing's just like, they, they have a message over there. It's getting better all the time. <laughs> it's like, which Paul told you this? Which messenger Paul told you this? And was it the dead one? Um, but uh, there's there's that element. There's the Tom Petty thing. And also the big thing that I think actually works, like the ray of sunshine that is consistent throughout this movie to me is Will Patton is having a ball. And yes. I think is actually well- genuinely fun. As, like, this manic, over-the-top kind of villain. Though, it is kind of interesting how Costner in this movie paints the idea of, like, oh, America's gone downhill by being taken over by this, like, awful neo-fascist group. And he's like, no, I want to fix that by going back to the exact way America used to be when I was younger. So everything can be totally fine, and there are no awful aspects to it. And it's like, Kevin, honey, I need to sit you down. Because... <laughs> I, I'm just picturing now Kevin Costner is going around Hollywood saying, I can play James Comey. Sure. I'm sure. But yeah, you would agree with that Patton's pretty fun consistently in this movie. He is. He was one of the things early on where I was thinking, wait, wait am I going to like this movie? Because his introduction is very fun. His outfits are very fun. The costuming is... I. So I think that this movie... Mrs. The Mark is the most generous way I can say it about uh, the post-apocalyptic look. I wanted it to look maybe not exactly like Fallout, but hey, like Waterworld. Waterworld's fun. You can look and see how old things got renovated into new things, and I wanted more of that. The costuming is the one thing where it's like, okay, this largely works. I really like the way his army looks. I really like his not-quite-Soviet hat. It's nice. I like his hat. I am grasping at straws. I like your hat. That's true, yeah. And I think this is the great example, sort of, in terms of, like, a best picture follow-up thing, where 
you know, you have like what we did with the talk about the exorcist where it's just like, it felt like a different project that he, that um, William Friedkin had passion for versus there's a lot of passion, at least in terms of like Costner wanting to do this. And he like refused to cut down despite like bad test screenings from the runtime and all that. But in the way where it's just like, no, I can't compromise my vision of this very like stoic look at like what American values need to come back to if I'm like in the post-apocalypse and it blew up in his face completely. Um, and he didn't direct another movie until like open range, uh, which was a Western that he did like several years later. And even then has not like directed much and has kind of laid low for the most part, except popping up in a few movies until Yellowstone, which obviously like, you know, brought him a lot of new clout and new fame. And I love now there's all this controversy about like, he might be leaving Yellowstone to make another giant Western epic. And like, despite how many problems I have with the postman, I am kind of fascinated just on a directorial level with like Costner's career. Cause it's just like, you know what? He wants to make big, grand, sweeping, soft-spoken epics. Um, I, we don't get a lot of those. So sure, Kevin, sure. You do that. I'm, I'm curious to see, whatever that is. Um, but, but yeah, at the same time, this feels like the great example of like the folly post the best picture win of just like, I'm using that clout for this thing that would appeal to no one cost $80 million and made 20. Um, it feels kind of like the exact opposite folly from like an exorcist. It just occurred to me that this movie probably uh, might not count because of that baseball movie. He did. What was the Sam Raimi baseball movie? Oh, for the love of the game. Yes. Yeah, didn't he, like, pretty much, like, call the shots on that movie? Well, I mean, that was the thing with a lot of the movies he did in between, um, like, the uh, Dancing with the Wolves and this, where even, I would say that's more the case with, like, Waterworld, where there's a lot of reports that, like, he basically directed the last third of that movie, essentially, <laughs> in production. Um, but I we went by credited directorial efforts, so, you know, there's nothing in between Dancing with Wolves and Postman for that. Uh, but yeah, he was definitely sort of a guy who kind of was the auteur even when he was not the director necessarily for a lot. Like, unless it was like the bodyguard and like Whitney Houston is like more the main person there. Um, he was kind of calling the shots. And I think this is the movie that completely obliterated his ability to do that for a while. <laughs> we have, in especially in the last like five, to, uh, five years or so, swung back hard from the sarcastic as a like the sarcastic blockbuster that almost uses self-deprecating humor as a human shield. So if we make this joke first before you can say it on Reddit, then your joke doesn't count. And we have kind of seen a swing back towards more earnest blockbusters that are like trying to take themselves seriously. I feel like this is one of the things that made people jaded about it because this is so earnest in uh, so many ways and it misfires pretty much every time like him seeing someone holding out a letter and it's uh, he stops the horse swings back in the in slow motion goes to pick it up and then th uh, 30 years later someone's going he picked up my letter oh good like, fucking god that, that epilogue we have to talk about that epilogue because in 30 years we went from post-apocalyptic wasteland to 1997 kevin how does that work? Another timeline thing. How do we get to fucking 1997 from Mad Max in just 30 years? I will give it a modest little a morsel of credit here. I didn't read that as 1997-esque. I read that as, uh, I read it as like, I guess, Star Trek First Contact caliber. Like, okay, things are 
like things are being built again, but it's not quite like achieving. There are yachts out there, Casey. I saw yachts and boats and all sorts of other things out there. And people looked like they were dressed up decent, like in 1997 era, like business casual. I was really zoned out by that point. I miss the yachts. Honestly, that perked me up because at that point, like, I was just like, oh, fucking kill me. And then, wait, what? Wait, we, we did this <laughs> in this amount of time? Because keep in mind, this was right after, like, the big climactic dumb battle between Costner and fucking Will Patton that's, like, so terrible. Where they, like, play chicken with each other on their horses and, like, it's there are all these, like, slow-mo cuts and wipes and all this bullshit. Just like, oh, my God, just shoot a fucking fight scene. What the fuck are we doing here? It was also weird there because I was like, this movie kind of has the rhythm of a movie that knows it's going to play on TV a lot, even though I don't even think this played on TV a lot. But it has the, okay, it's sort of vignette style, like, say, you know, Shawshank Redemption style movies of, okay, every 20 minutes there's this little plot, it has enough of a conclusion that if you have to go change the channel or go to work or go to get dinner then you have seen enough, and when it cuts back to commercial break, uh, you may or may not still be here. I think that's what kind of put Costner on sort of a map to some degree as well, like has made him kind of last to some degree in people's minds, is like Waterworld, Dances with Wolves, The Bodyguard. Those were a lot of movies I remember switching by on cable. The dude was kind of the king of like the Sunday cable movie, as far as I'm concerned. Like it would play on like TNT or TBS or some shit like that. For a while, he was kind of in that zone, and I felt like it was almost like, oh, Waterworld actually made a lot more money like on video and also on TV, even by that point, than it did in theaters. So it's almost like he's kind of banking on that, uh, even though I do agree that like this was a movie that like people were shunned from like even cheap TV syndication rights were like, no, get this out of here. This is radioactive. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> I, w I want to know if this movie would have developed a fan base of people saying, eh, it's not so bad if they actually did have, like, a, like a generation of people who watched it on TV. The weird thing about this movie is that it also kind of feels like it's the TV edit of a movie that was in theaters at, like, 2 hours, 15 minutes. Like, oh, we gotta, like, pad out some things for commercials, so let's put all this stuff. But Kevin did not want to do that. Like, nope, you're getting the TV version early. <laughs> like, I was surprised when he said he's not cutting it down, because it felt cut down to me. The editing in this movie's pretty bad. Something is not established between one shot and the next. The mise-en-scene does not quite work. It felt like uh, someone saying, okay, we have... We only have time for what is absolutely necessary, and if you cut uh, shot B, you have to cut that for shot A and shot C. Yeah, my thought is it's less like that, and it's more just like, Kevin, we ran out of film. We don't have time for coverage. You used all of the film. <laughs> we can't make any more movies until 1998. You used it all. <laughs> and, and keep in mind, this movie came out, like, what, a couple weeks after fucking Titanic? Which is a movie that is only about 15 minutes longer, but feels like it just runs by smoothly, perfectly, beautifully. A Best Picture winner that plays wonderfully by today's standards, as opposed to, like, if I saw this in a theater, this would definitely be a, I am sleeping in this recliner seat. <laughs> I cannot contain I, any. It was a struggle to get through it this time. <laughs> yeah, we're not seeing any 4K re-releases of The Postman anytime soon. No. I say as I... I love that you brought up Titanic, though, because I was literally having a beer out of my Titanic pint glass. I am wearing a Titanic shirt right now. Specifically, my, my girlfriend took me to a Titanic museum for my birthday, so I walked away with a lot of Titanic merch. True displays of love via Titanic merch. Yeah, 
She knows it's a very important nautical disaster for me. I like the way people face death, and I like it when propeller guy hits the propeller. <laughs> for sure. Uh, but in case you couldn't tell, I don't think we have much else to say about the Postman. So any final <laughs> thoughts possible about the Postman, Casey? So this happens a lot with Double Edge Double Bill, where when I have to watch a movie, I... Uh, construct a friend of mine from high school who we do synchronized movie watches with because it's fun to bounce notes off of someone else and see if someone who doesn't necessarily know a lot about the movie see how they respond to it and we've had a lot of neat double features doing that when i asked him to do this he thought i was asking him to watch the postman rings twice and he was so excited and when he said the 1946 version right i was like oh no this is the uh this is the kevin costner movie and he fucking bailed, and I'm so fucking jealous. <laughs> Alex, you owe me a bad movie for this. You got out. You got to that lifeboat, and I stayed. When your door is the postman, you don't have much to like <laughs> potentially float on, necessarily. You see, in this scenario... And Rose is on the door, and Jack's like, no, no, I'd, I'd rather just die. Jack, I'll never let go. No, please let go. Let go of me. <laughs> let me be free. <laughs> and Rose is replaced with Kevin Costner, so it's more just like, Jack, I'll never let go. Oh, Jack, oh, no. I'm marrying Cal. I love Cal. <laughs> okay, now that I've said out loud, uh, romance movie, Billy Zane, Kevin Costner. I would no. watch my OTP that. for sure. I would <laughs> Zane and Costner, like that. Like Kevin Costner is just trying to like be very cool and understated, and Zane is just at his zaniest. I mean, in both senses of the word. I put the coat on Costner, and I put the jewel in the coat with Costner. <laughs> he rode for the horse. That's what he did. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't have much else to add about The Postman necessarily. Um, it, it's one of those rare movies as well, because, like, when you hear something is so infamously bad, you want to be one of the ones where it's like, actually, guys, if you go back to it, there's a fascinating element to this that might not be good, but it's at least kind of interesting. This is dull as dishwater. It is so unbelievably dull in a movie that, like, I completely get why it earned, like, its infamy. Like, I'll just rephrase this joke from The Simpsons. Where there's a bit where Lisa and everybody's like at this like electronic store and she's watching mm -hmm. like on the TV it has the postman on it and there's one where she's like oh director's commentary and she clicks the button and Kevin Costner shows up in picture within picture and he's just like oh god I'm sorry oh no what was I thinking oh man I am so sorry everybody oh oof I oh, got god like that is what this movie should be even though Costner I'll just read this little quote from him where he was talking about, like, defending the movie, he said, I always thought it was a really good movie. I always thought I probably started it wrong. I should have said something like Once Upon a Time, because it's just like a modern fairy tale. It wraps itself up like a storybook ending with a statue. You know, I thought it was a pretty fun movie set against the idea of a Superman, somebody stepping up, but in this case, it's a very humble guy who's, who's nothing but a liar, <laughs> delivers mail and burns half of it to stay alive. So I like that movie. Before you said that, I was thinking, like, I wonder what he thinks of this movie. In the same way, I wonder how Steven Spielberg thinks of 1941. Well, that's the problem, is that, like, Spielberg is very critical of himself. If you watch, like, that Spielberg documentary, he's very critical of, like, his mistakes, like 1941, other things like that. Concert seems like he necessarily doesn't really dwell on any of that, but he's like, I don't know, I kind of have fun with it. 
I'm like, okay, Kevin, sure, you know, enjoy your Yellowstone money and make your big Western epic. I'm sure it'll be interesting, but... Honestly, I had no idea he was on Yellowstone, even though apparently 17 trillion people watch that show now. I know, because anyone I know over the age of 35 watches that show. Or if you're a dad. If you're a dad, you are legally required to watch Yellowstone. I remember as the show, my parents were watching because my parents spent a summer in Yellowstone, and they just wanted to see more of Yellowstone. That's true. You have to watch Yellowstone and World War II documentaries on History Channel. You're required viewing at all times. And when you go to bed, be sure to have your LBJ uh, book by your uh, bedside table. <laughs> That's true. The, the Trinity. <laughs> I'm so excited for my Lyndon Baines Johnson face. <laughs> Are we all? But now, Casey, it's time that we get into our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double 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 so uh, every week on the show, we do a segment called The Double Redo, which is a segment in which uh, we, you know, in addition to the two movies we talk about for the topic, uh, we recommend and don't recommend to you a movie each. So uh, Casey and I each have a good and a bad pick related to best picture follow-ups to talk to you all about. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and start off here with uh, my good pick, first of all, is a movie I didn't actually see until very recently. Uh, and I was uh, have not seen the follow-up this is, because this is Anthony Minghella's follow-up to uh, The English Patient, which I haven't seen. That's another one of those which is like, it looks so fucking long and dull, so I don't know if I'm ever going to watch that. But I heard a lot of other stuff about his follow-up, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which, uh, if you don't know, is based on a novel and a series of novels. Apparently this character's in a bunch of them. But uh, Mr. Ripley himself, Tom Ripley, played by Matt Damon, he's a post-college graduate in the 50s. And uh, he is tasked by his boss to go uh, after his son, who has been in Italy for so long, uh, just kind of like living up life. And uh, he ends up going over there um, to meet up with Jude Law, who plays the son, and his uh, fiance Gwyneth Paltrow. Immediately, uh, Matt Damon becomes sort of like fascinated with like their carefree life in Rome, and also is very clearly like attracted to Jude Law. Um, in as much as like a '90s movie can allow him to be clearly like sexually attracted to him and I think there's this really fascinating thing where like it's this movie about like this Tom Ripley character who is initially kind of like unassuming because like oh it's young floppy haired Matt Damon just off of Goodwill Hunting I'm sure he's totally like innocent and sweet but you establish a lot of things about how like he really is good at being uh like at imitation like he can do voices very well and mannerisms and he basically starts to take over Jude Law's life like, on the sidelines, and even, spoilers, he ends up murdering him about halfway through the movie, so he ends up taking over his identity and all, like, the different facets of that, and it's a, I think, an astonishingly great movie that I had heard about, and I think has gotten a lot more, sort of, like, cult appreciation in recent years, and it was nominated for some Oscars and stuff, but it feels like, for a large point, disappeared, and I always just kind of assumed, like, oh, this is kind of like a, you know, a stodgy Oscar movie that I never saw. But it's a really fascinating kind of, like, comic thriller that has great performances from not just Damon, but also Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Philip Seymour Hoffman as a supporting role. Always fun seeing him be really fucking cool in a movie. 
um, James Rebhorn, who plays the dad, one of my favorite character actors. It's this really fascinating movie just about, like, a guy who has no discernible life of his own, kind of, like, leeching onto people and, like, sucking sort of the life dry while being, you know, very, like, cute, adorable, like, 90s-era Matt Damon. And I think that's it's a fascinating movie that has, like, so many, like, great twists and turns I wasn't expecting, even, like, after that Jude Law thing in the middle. There's, like, so much other stuff that I think is incredible about that movie afterward. And it's just, like, all the way up to its very like chilling ending. I was deeply fascinated and engaged the entire time. It's such a, it's another movie where like that one is about like two hours, 20 minutes long flies by at a clip. It's just like, is so engrossing the whole time. Wonderful little movie. Um, and then my bad pick, um, is kind of like more in the postman range, even though this was a very successful movie, uh, very acclaimed movie. Uh, the director won the best directing Oscar right after he had won one the previous year. I have the revenant from, uh, Alejandro Gonzalez and Aritu. And uh, this is a movie that, like I said, it got like so much praise that Leonardo DiCaprio finally won his Oscar for this movie. And I know a lot of people who love this movie. But I think this and Birdman, which are the two like Naruto movies I've seen, like I still kind of like Birdman, but it, The Revenant I think is even more exemplifying of like all the worst traits about Birdman to me, where it's like all these elaborate, endless one shots and it feels like very showy very cold, very sterile, and any attempt to actually engage me with, like, these characters on an emotional level never really works. There's a whole thing with, like, Leonardo DiCaprio's son, who um, is, like, his child from, like, um, having love affair with a Native American woman that feels, like, so, like, off to the side, even though it's kind of his motivation to, like, continue on, where they try and, like, have their cake and eat it, too, where it's, like, it's there, but also it doesn't really matter on any, like, actual, like, engaging, engrossing, like, emotional level, and, like, just so many endless scenes of DiCaprio, like, being so immersed in, like, oh, I had to be method, and eat, like, this, you know, actual raw guts and other bullshit like that, it just feels so dull to me despite how like all the crap that's going on there it feels like it's just kind of wasted on uh, especially like all there's like not many other people like honestly the only person i found any kind of engagement with was tom hardy um who just says pelts a lot and has a weird accent that i know wasn't historically accurate whatsoever that's at least something as opposed to just like Leonardo DiCaprio eating bison or dom hall gleason being there and a few other interesting actors just kind of being there. It just feels like it's, once again, it's this movie that is so caught up with, like, sort of the Oscar bait idea of, like, oh, we have to show off our technical prowess and our ability to, like, just, like, really immerse you in this environment by just, like, shooting it for a while, when really that doesn't do anything for me. It just feels like I'm watching a long-ass fucking, like, picture that barely isn't, like, 24 frames per second. It's just one frame forever <laughs> going on a loop. And it just does not feel, despite all the technical elements of it, that are, like, so, like, you know, well-crafted, I guess. Uh, it doesn't mean jack shit to me if I'm kind of bored this whole fucking movie. Yeah, 2015 uh, was sort of like my low point of inability to see movies in theaters. And the cycle from being so bummed that I missed The Revenant to not being bummed in the slightest that I missed The Revenant. I'm probably never going to get back to seeing that movie. I'm even apprehensive to go back and watch my Birdman Blu-ray, even though I'm looking at it right now at this moment and still think about that movie very fondly. And also, I am so glad you've gotten to Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, I reference that movie quite a bit. 
not just because I work in uh, New York politics sometimes. And when George Santos became a thing, that is how I started saying, like, oh, you ever see Talented Mr. Ripley? That's what that guy's doing. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> in November, for the friend who we do synchronized movie watches, I planned out, I plotted out three noir adjacent movies for noir vember but they were patricia highsmith adaptations and so we did strangers on a train talented mr ripley and carol and my god talented mr ripley i had seen it before because i watched it just after reading the disaster artist on which might actually be one of the things that got that movie to be like reappraised weirdly enough right I watched it then, I liked it. I watched it again last November, absolutely loved it. It is one of the best neo-noirs. It is a beautiful-looking movie. It's a wonderful character study. Uh, everybody in the movie is... To be honest, everyone in the movie looks really hot, and they look really good in all the costumes and all the sets, and it made me want to just be in Italy eating food and drinking wine. <laughs> even though it's not necessarily the most optimistic chipper movie. No, no. Also a shout out, um, edited by Walter Murch, one of the great editors, and really? such an amazing edit job on that movie. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible the way that, that movie is like constructed. It's so perfect, especially even like the opening credits. I love the look of those opening credits. It almost looks like one of those album covers that they're t referencing. Just like, oh, you know Bird? Look, my ship's called Bird. <laughs> Which I love that bit. But Casey, what are your choices for the double redo? So I went back and forth on what I want, what I would choose for the double or do for the good pick, but I'm settling on, on what is probably my favorite best picture follow up, which is the conversation. Uh, I watched it last year because it was what I've been calling a homework movie. I'd been putting it off for years because I thought this is just going to be a a movie that has its moments, but is a tedious thing in the middle of two Godfathers, and it is so far from that. This is the cleanest uh, Coppola movie I've ever seen in terms of just, like, it moves at a fucking clip, and it's kind of amazing that something this good came out between productions that were that engrossing. This is just a brilliant little thriller. It looks great. It sounds great. It's edited well. It's acted well. And the way in the beginning of the movie uh, they introduce what is going to be the tape of notes where it's just all static. You, there was a moment when I was wondering if there was something wrong with my TV and as it, and as it kept going and they were cleaning it up, it becomes like more clear and you're able to understand the conversation more. You hear it better. That's not just good. I want things to rip that off. That should have become a norm of how people show unclear audio the way Texting in movies is now just you see the words on the screen while they're looking at the phone. It is a, truly a masterpiece. It is maybe Coppola's second best movie. It blew me away. It immediately shot from my, I, I guess I have to watch this too. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. And my bad pick, I only have watched because it was Regal Cinema's mystery movie of, I believe, November 2022. The greatest beer run ever, which not the movie's biggest sin, but that movie doesn't have a title card up front. So when you're watching it as a mystery movie, everyone in the movie was just slowly going, what the fuck is this movie? What is it even called? And you could actually like see a wave of people like identifying an actor and Googling what was he in in 2021 just to figure out what the movie was.
it's Pierre Farrelly's follow-up to Green Book, and it is better than Green Book in that it's slightly less offensive to sensibilities of people, but not better in that he has decided what his thing is, apparently, is just having a movie come out that has a critical look of something from the 1960s, and all it really does is say, hey... The war in Vietnam was bad. Zac Efron thought the war in Vietnam was good, so he brought a suitcase full of PBR. But then when he was in Vietnam, he realized sometimes bad things happen in war. And it's clawing. It's largely dull. It is so bizarre and actually kind of telling about Green Book that someone wins Best Picture in such a dramatic, high-profile fashion, and their next movie is a direct-to-Apple-plus uh, movie that doesn't even get awards consideration in the slightest. Uh, so yeah, I haven't seen The Greatest Beer Run ever. Um, I'm probably going to avoid watching the post-Green Book uh, Peter Farley movies, because uh, Green Book just seemed kind of like this like sad realization that we are not far behind uh, the days of Driving the Stacey winning Best Picture unfortunately. Um, so I was just like, yeah, I don't know if I want to keep supporting that. And apparently at least the Academy is just like, oh yeah, we were like drunk. We're very sorry. We're not going to do that again. So hopefully that stays. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Imagine the night Greenbuck wins telling uh, telling yourself, hey, you know what the frontrunner is going to be in four years? Craziest goddamn multiverse movie ever with Michelle Yeoh doing kung fu with butt plugs. Look, I'm very sure the Academy woke up that next day after Green Rook won Best Picture and was, like, in bed with Peter Farrelly, just like, oh, God. Oh, but in the mirror, just like, you fucking piece of shit, I can't believe you did this. And also, you watch after I said that, they just give it to All Quiet on the Western Front. Well, that's true, good point. <laughs> you know, who knows, that might happen. Uh, we have, the Oscars haven't happened yet as we're recording this. Um, but yeah, The Conversation is a movie we've talked about in the show. I think that is a tremendous movie. What I loved, too, with that movie was uh, telling Adam about it and him saying, just like, I didn't know this movie existed. I think the fact that it came out in between the two Godfathers, I think, really hurt it, which is a bummer considering, like, it was nominated right alongside The Godfather Part Two. Uh, which won, obviously, like, multiple awards. And I, I would agree, I think, is the under... At least the most underrated Coppola movie, for sure. Um, it's, like, the the sound design is immaculate, as you mentioned, but also just, like, one of my favorite Gene Hackman performances, especially as, like, a meeker individual, who at the <laughs> same time is, like, has so many, like, you know, inherent, like, monstrous tendencies and stuff like that. And so much great stuff. One of the, you know, one of the few John Cazale movies that are out there, and he think he's incredible in his small part. I agree with you about that opening is amazing and just like some of the best like sound design just ever in a movie overall with that whole thing tremendous if you have not seen that movie definitely uh watch it and then go back into the archives where we talked about that i believe with jack on our coppola episode <laughs> so real contrasts with those two movies it's two most underrated movies <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Good point. Both great. Um, but let's uh, repeat our titles for everybody out there. I have uh, my good pick of The Talented Mr. Ripley and my bad pick of The Revenant. And I had my good pick of The Conversation and my bad pick of, of The Greatest Beer Run Ever. Yes, and so now we're going to be winding down and heading to the end, and we'll be doing our picking for next week on that, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but uh, before we do, we have to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water on various social. That's night with a K underscore of underscore water. 
on various socials for all his great artwork out there. And thanks, of course, to our loyal Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash DEDBpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get access to, uh, you know, polls where you get to help us pick individual movies we cover and also bonus podcasts we produce every month. Like I'll just say, uh, this is March now, the first episode of March, so uh, get ready for our March Madness episode all about best animated film. Uh, We'll be doing uh, that for this year. It'll be a lot of fun. And then you all get to vote this particular week uh, for um, we'll be doing in April to tie in with Evil Dead Rise, an episode about monstrous moms in movies. Uh, you know, given that movie's very tied to like the possessed mom character and whatnot. So uh, you'll have to pick between Adam's two good choices for that particular episode, which will be Hereditary versus Serial Mom. Both will be very interesting. <laughs> Whichever one of those we cover, very interesting discussions. <laughs> Very similar films, obviously. I want you to know that the, I've been so avoiding on the trailer that you describing this is how I learned what's happening in Evil Dead Rise. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. The spoilers. I'm sorry if you're a trailer reverse out there, everybody. Um, but yeah, so Hereditary and Serial Mom, you'll get to vote for that. If you're a patron uh, for just the $1, which that would include Casey, our wonderful guest. Thank you, Casey, for being not just a patron, but our guest here and a friend. Please uh, go ahead and uh, plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me at Twitter at the underscore Caser, though I I actually had to look to see what it was because I forgot. And I also realized, oh, I have not tweeted since February 15th. So I think, say what you will about Elon, I actually feel like Twitter is running so poorly now that I'm actually spending less time on it because it's not giving me content I'm interested in. So thanks, Elon. You're improving my life a little. Uh, I guess you can find me on Instagram. I believe I'm just under Casey Gerard, spelled the way my name is spelled. Uh, why'd my parents have to name me that? Uh, yeah, and if you want to support my work, uh, you can either, I don't know, go vote for a Democrat in your local primary, or you if you need a car fixed in Queens, hit me up. I, I work at a mechanic shop now, even though I don't drive. Uh, it's very funny. <laughs> Good bit. <laughs> I I had over my birthday I explained it to my sister and she and she was like this sounds made up you are making this up and I'm like, nope I work for two guys both named Ivan <laughs> I look up Ivan's body works out there <laughs> and no no it's about the brothers because Ivan Senior he has a brother named Pat and if Pat goes home then his brother Fred takes over Fred kind of okay. looks like Kyle McLaughlin in Twin Peaks season three before your employers find out about this um we recommend you follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at dedbpod and uh, you can also email us doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com all spelled out uh to submit feedback and stuff to us and you can find me on twitter and letterboxes at not the who's tommy and i also do some writing at uh, marianitomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred dot com and you know we've kind of been talking about the oscars for this particular episode obviously i should mentioned that uh you know traditionally i've gone on front of the show rafe telsh's podcast have not seen this every year to do sort of like uh, an oscar rundown of like some of the big categories i've done that with him emily slade and mel gore also friends of the show um in the past and we had planned to do that for this particular uh oscar season but unfortunately rafe had to cancel last minute due to some personal issues so he uh couldn't record it for his particular show and he had to bow out i with his blessing uh, decided to record the discussion at least with Emily and Mel, 
And we're going to release it on this feed as a bonus episode later in the week, like after this episode comes out, but before the Oscars at some point. And uh, it'll be able for you to listen. And uh, I had a lot of fun recording with those two. Uh, we missed Rafe, of course, very much. But uh, there's still a lot of uh, interesting discussion about a lot of the big categories and, and all that stuff. So it's a like, solid regular episode length, even a bit longer uh, bonus podcast. Uh, we'll be dropping in your feed later in the week. So for more of us, please subscribe or follow us on the various podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network here? And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like nearly 200 episodes before we joined TFS. And nothing else, if you can't, uh, you know, support us on the Patreon for that $1. We totally get it. Money can be tight for some people. The completely free way to help us out is just to rate, review, or simply share the show around gets us more visibility out there in the ether but now casey as we head to the end of the show uh finally as the, the, as our postman long running time finally ends uh we are going to be doing our picking for next week as we do at the end of every episode basically um i have adam's picks as well during his sabbatical he sent me his two picks and i have my two picks uh, we switch up on quality between good and bad i have the two good picks adam has the two bad ones and uh, we assign numbers between 1 and 10 for each of them. And, uh, you know, the other alt person picks number between 1 and 10 for those choices. And that gets us our good and our bad features. So Casey, for example, could say, you know, oh, for your good picks, I'm going to pick number 5. And I'll be like, okay, that's closest to number 3, which is this particular choice. And, uh, you know, that gets us the good and the bad pick. And uh, next week's going to be interesting because it's episode 250 of the show. And usually around these, like, sort of, you know, big milestone numbers, we like to do, uh, you know, some of our recurring kind of topics that are exclusive to the show. And this one is redemption. So given, you know, what we do every week for the show where we have two good and two bad picks and we only pick one good and one bad one to cover on the next episode, you know, another choice gets tossed into the dust doesn't get picked but once a year we like to do redemption where we take out two choices that were not picked previously and have them uh, potentially be uh, you know covered for the you know for an episode just you know for these wayward island of misfit toys kind of episodes so casey for my two good picks for redemption please pick a number between one and ten i am going to pick number nine all right and number eight, uh, this is a fun one, because this is our alt from um, Musicians Turned Actors, uh, which Ooh. was one of my picks. And um, this was a fun one, because, uh, you know, it's it's very bizarre. And I think it's definitely one that I don't think we'd have much opportunity to cover unless it's for, like, a redemption or something like that. I have the Weird Al vehicle UHF. Huh. I've heard about this movie for years. I keep thinking it's a wrestling thing and saying I'm not going to watch it. And then when I'm reminded it's a weird out thing, I go, oh, I should watch it. Huh. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, even when, you know, one of the major supporting characters is played by Michael Richards, it's a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, <laughs> on the other side of things, over at number two, I had my alt from uh, Urban Fantasy, uh, that episode, uh, which was the Albert Brooks lovable uh, sort of urban fantasy comedy, uh, Defending Your Life. I'm not even entirely sure and I've heard of that movie. Huh. I, Albert Brooks uh, is a massive blind spot. Uh, the only thing I've watched is half of broadcast news on an airplane trip to Italy and I fell asleep because it was like 1 a.m. New York time at that moment. Basic logline for that movie, Albert Brooks plays a guy who ends up dying 
goes up to a version of heaven. And the whole gimmick is the way you stay in heaven is uh, you have to uh, defend your life in front of like a little trial. So you have to look back at your life and defend all the choices you made, even the bad ones. Fuck, I'm into that. It's a pretty fun movie. Meryl Streep's in it. She's very fun. Uh, but now, for Adam's two bad picks, please pick a number between 1 and 10. Uh, let's go number 2. Okay. At number 4, uh, Adam has a movie that... This will be interesting because it's the first time we've ever covered a remake for a movie we've previously covered on the show. Because this was his alt for cerebral sci-fi films for A Bad Choice. And uh, he has the Total Recall remake... Starring Colin Farrell. A movie that exists. It apparently does. And I'll finally get to watch it. Because I'm, like most people, I didn't when it came out. I remember thinking the original wasn't that long ago. And, and looking back, it was probably like 25 years, which is short, but not that short a gap between the original and the remake. I thought it would make a bigger splash. And it made less of a splash than the RoboCop remake. Another movie which does not exist. Very true, very true. But on the other side of things, uh, speaking of movies that don't necessarily exist, but at least are, I have a wager that this will at least be more fascinating than the Total Recall remake, uh, because I've at least seen this one. It's weird. Um, I have uh, the alts for Natalie Portman that uh, Adam had had previously for the bad pick of Vox Lux. That is an interesting movie. I like this one of those times where it's like, oh, I should have. If I picked the other way, then I'm really curious how you guys would have covered Vox Lux. Yeah, Vox Lux is very... I've seen Vox Lux. I've watched around the time of the Natalie Portman episode. That is a weird movie with a lot of different things we have to, like, very delicately discuss. It's, it is it is a fascinating movie. Yeah, a lot, a lot to unpack there, as the kids say. This is not quite to the level of that time. If I picked it right, then I would have been, you guys would have done a double feature of Halloween three twice. But this is up there. <laughs> That's true. That did. <laughs> I oh, I actually well. regularly wonder what you guys would have done in that case. <laughs> I, who knows? Some alternate universe where we did that. Uh, you have to look into that portal. But that is the end of our episode. And until next time, everybody. Uh, you know what? We're at least. Half as long as the postman. <laughs> we can at least say that much. That was my goal. <laughs>